Hey, Mrs. Steam viewer, this is Rob Kent, and this is another episode of Middle Grade Ninja TV. Uh, today we're with Jeff Norton. I, of course, am the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, which is available in audiobook, paperback, and the ebook is always free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write horror novels that are relevant to today's discussion. Got two zombie novels available. Uh, and then I've also got a series of five books, The Book of David, uh, specifically about UFOs and flying saucer lore in a haunted house. It's good times, but that's for older readers. The first chapter, knowing you've got this much book left to go, the first chapter is free to download as an ebook whenever you're listening to this. Uh, Let's say a big welcome to my guest, Jeff Norton. Uh, Jeff, hi, how are you? Hey, Rob, I'm good, and thanks for uh, for having me on the Hangout. This is fantastic. So tell uh, the Steam viewer about yourself and where we can find out more about you and, and the things that you've written. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I live in London. Uh, despite my accent, I live in London, England. I've been here for about uh, 12 years. I grew up in Canada originally, but I moved around the US quite a bit. So uh, I moved over from LA just over 12 years ago. And I've done lots of different things within the entertainment industry, but I'm primarily a, a writer, creator, uh, television producer, um, and there's loads more than you ever wanted to know about me at uh, jeffnorton.com. Can we ever know too much? <laughs> <laughs> there is too much, yeah. <laughs> Probably so. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, company, Awesome, and why a guy like you who's writing about zombies and aliens is also involved in a project called Princess Ponies. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I really see myself as a storyteller, as a creator, first and foremost. And Awesome Media and Entertainment is the production company that grew out of the things that I wrote. Um, and it's really awesome is two things. It's a, it's a, a production company. So we work with co-production partners and broadcasters primarily to bring books to screen, which is the area that I've been involved in for a long time now. Um, and then we also are getting increasingly involved in publishing and bringing other people's optioning in other people's book rights so that we can help bring those to the screen as well. Um, but to your question about ponies, um, I, I, I write things I'm passionate about um, and I try and help others do the same thing. But the Ponies Project is actually one that's very near and dear to my heart. So a bunch of years ago, probably six or so years ago, my little niece, Isla, um, who's now north of 10, she's now just turned 10. Um, at the time, she was graduating graduating out of Dora the Explorer. And you probably know Dora, it's a huge big franchise for Nickelodeon. Unfortunately, and we're very familiar with Dora the Explorer at the Kent household, yes. <laughs> um, and actually Dora is great. I mean, Dora is an intrepid um, adventurer. She's got a lot of amazing qualities. She's actually a great little role model for, for very young people. The problem is you graduate out of Dora and often there's nowhere to go. And at the time, my sister was very frustrated that her eldest daughter was basically being dumped into the, the pink ghetto, sort of Barbies and princesses and damsel in distress and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so she asked me if I could do something about that. Now, at the time I was writing a series called Meta Wars, which is a young adult tech thriller. And I thought, I, I don't know any, I, I can't do anything about this. I'm, I'm not able to create something that would you know, be right for, for young girls. But the more I thought about it, I thought actually, um, I probably could. So despite its pink and sparkly covers, uh, Princess, which I think is, well, there's one here. This is one of the, the books that, uh, I think they sell these at the at Costco, you know, the, at the club stores. Um, despite the pink and sparkly covers, 
it's basically ass kicking swashbuckling for little girls. It's think the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings for seven or eight year old girls. Um, and it's very much about courage. So if my little pony is about friendship and horseplay and hair play, Princess Ponies, despite the covers, is, is fundamentally about courage and believing in yourself. And it's basically about this little girl who gets magically transported to an enchanted island where she effectively becomes a superhero. Um, so in a way, I think it's, it was a little bit ahead of its time, but the books have done phenomenally well. They're published by Bloomsbury, who are the same folks that publish Harry Potter. There's 12 of them now. We're working on four more, so there'll be 16 in a series, and uh, people just can't seem to get enough of them. Uh, in fact, there's one coming out, pretty sure it's this one, which is Seasons Gallopings, uh, which is a Christmas-themed one that'll come out from, uh, from Bloomsbury in just a couple weeks. Yeah, no, Halloween's officially over. It's time to, to start plugging Christmas hard. Exactly. Uh, so you were meant to bring her out of the pink ghetto, and it sounds like you kind of met halfway. She dragged you down into the pink ghetto a little bit, but you were able to find a way to relate to those stories and to bring uh, some of the things that you love to that uh, and, and to expand your horizons and, and tell stories that you otherwise don't have experience telling. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, one of the things that, that was um, hard for me as, as an author who has some experience uh, with branding and, and, and brand building and brand creation and things like that, is that I, if it were up to me, the covers would look like an Indiana Jones poster. And maybe we would have sold five copies, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, Bloomsbury, um, ultimately they control what the artwork looks like. So when you submit your manuscript, I basically control the words. They, and I must say, I write these with a, a fantastic woman called Julie Sykes. We do them together under the pen name Chloe Ryder. So it's not just me. It's two of us that, that do it as a team, which is a lot how of fun. Does, uh, how does that collaboration work back and forth? Do you write some and then you send it to her and she adds some? Or do you that's, do that's it exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's very collaborative. I probably tend towards plot, character, and the story arc. Um, Julie's great with prose and making the, the, the actual pages really sing, but we, we go back and forth and, and I overwrite her and she overwrites me. Um, it's very collaborative. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, but to your question, you know, I think what I tried to bring to the idea was basically high fantasy adventure. Um, Bloomsbury, you know, decided that they would control what the covers looked like and they did the pinks and the sparkles and all that stuff. And, you know, we get a lot of letters from parents that basically all sound the same. And they all say, my daughter bought this from the Scholastic Book Fair and it was pink and sparkly and I totally groaned and we don't want to be doing that. And we're trying to introduce her to other things that aren't pink. But, oh my God, then we read them and they're so good and they're so empowering. And the word we get is empowering all the time. Um, so, you know what, if, if the pinks and the sparkles get people into the door, it's bad pun, but it's like a Trojan horse. And then if they get hooked <laughs> by a great story, but I'm happy. But yeah, no, it's, it's a fun, it's a, it's a fun series. I, I, I love working on them. Um, and you know, most, it's funny cause it's not, and the only reason they're primarily not under my name, one is because it's a collaboration, but two, at the time I was writing these Meta Wars books, which are pretty hardcore, fairly violent, kind of in the Hunger Games, Maze Runner kind of space. And I didn't think that parents of seven or eight year old girls would want to buy a series from this guy, Jeff Norton, who is also known for writing these uh, high octane tech thrillers. So that was the decision I made for right, right or wrong. I don't know if I got that right, but, uh, but the books have done really well. So I'm happy to see them out there in the world. Well, if they're doing really well and you're empowering young girls, that sounds right enough to me. I think so. Yeah. No, I'm pretty happy with it. 
And then you're also uh, a TV producer. You have a lot of experience uh, making some short films and, and, and producing television. So I wanted to make sure I ask you, what is the big difference uh, between collaborating on a project like Princess Ponies, writing your own story, or working with, I assume, a, a pretty large group of people specifically to create uh, a, a, a visual medium that you're probably going to have less control over than you would your own novel? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think the, I mean, really the key is exactly as you said, that the word collaboration. So, you know, the more expensive a project is, generally speaking, the more people are involved in it. And generally speaking, the more you're trying to de-risk it creatively, right? So if, if you're sitting down to write a book, you basically have full control. I mean, you know, Meta Wars or Neurotic Zombie or Alienate, those are great examples. I mean, those are books where, you know, when I sit down, I am the director, the showrunner, the editor. I mean, obviously I work with an, an editor who works with my words, but you know, I'm in complete control over what the reader experiences. If you're trying to do something for the screen, I made, for example, I've done loads of things, but I, I did a, a preschool show, a couple seasons of a preschool show, which was animated. And there were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people involved in different locations all around the world. We had people in Toronto, we had people in Malaysia. And when you're doing something like that, you've got a network involved, you've got development executives, you've got heads of department, heads of animation, and really the role there is just make sure that everybody's singing from the same song sheet. I, ca I call it keeping it honest. And I guess the role that I always try and play, whether it's my own work or whether I'm helping somebody else, another author get their projects made, is to be the keeper of the tone. Because I think that's the one thing that an author brings to their written work is a point of view on the world. And even though the story may have to evolve and change for the screen, I think if you can keep that author's voice and that tone, that's probably the most, that's kind of the most sacred thing I can wrap my arms around to, to kind of protect for an author. So what, uh, for people that are, that are thinking that they might want to uh, participate in a film adaptation or, 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 or a YouTube series or whatever they want to do with their, their project, what specific steps do you take to help maintain that tone? I guess for me, it's, it's really about understanding where it's coming from and making sure right at the very beginning of a process that the people who are going to go on that journey with you see the same vision. And because, and again, I don't want to get into all the semantics of how the legal is done and optioning and all that stuff. But as your viewers might know, typically what happens is when somebody options a book from an author, there's all sorts of legalese that basically say that production company or that studio basically can do whatever they want. Now, sometimes there's some carve outs and sometimes, you know, the author can say, well, you know, you can't do this or things that are morally uh, ambiguous, you can't do or what have you. But generally speaking, you're really, you're kind of like selling your house. And if the next people want to redecorate it, they're legally allowed to do that. So what you want to do is you want to make sure from the get-go you have a trusting relationship with the people you're going to work with. And as much as possible, you want to have uh, a voice at the table. Um, so, you know, Walking Dead is a good example. You know, Robert Kirkman was an executive producer on that. He wrote, I think it was episode five of the first initial run. Um, you know, Skybound was his company. With, you know, Circle of Confusion was his management company. So lots of people were working on his behalf. And so if you can do that as much as possible, have people that share your vision, that's probably the secret to success. When, I'm, when I do it, when I work with authors and help them, it's really about trust. It's really about making sure that everybody that we hire, everybody that wants to work on the project has the same tonal ambition, maybe a different story ambition because story can change and plot can change, but that they have the same point of view, the same lens on the world. That makes complete sense to me. 
And so I don't want to spend uh, forever talking about your time as a, as a video producer, because I don't want to talk to you about your, your books and being an author. That's what my viewers uh, want to know more about. But I did want to ask you, um, were, I believe, a producer on the film version of Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, am, I, am I getting that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. No, I, um, I, those were books. Did you grow up with those, Rob? Did I you absolutely grew up with them. I loved them. And if there was ever one property, I would think that would just be impossible to adapt to a film medium. It would be the, the choose your own adventures. So how did you do it? Yeah, uh, it was hard. It was, uh, it was, a, it was an incredible creative challenge. So I, I grew up with those books. I, I was not a big reader as a boy and, uh, they were really the book series that flipped me from being a reluctant reader to certainly a competent reader, if eventually an avid reader. Um, and so when I, when I was older, you know, when I was a young adult and I had been doing all sorts of basically internships in Hollywood and I started at an agency and pushed a mail card at a big Hollywood agency and I worked for Warner Brothers for a bit and Jim Henson Company for a bit. I did all sorts of basically development and sort of odd jobs around, around town. And one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to wrap my arms around a piece of IP, a piece of intellectual property, a story, an underlying story that I could help shape into something for the screen. And it was the first time I had ever done it. And I went after the rights to choose your own adventure. And um, the, the rights holders uh, took a big leap of faith. And we we're talking about trust earlier. And I think, you know, they trusted that I had the best that I had the best interests of that brand um, in, in my heart and in my head. Um, and so what we ended up doing is we turned them into an interactive DVD movie. And for this was, uh, this started in 2003, the film came out in 2006, which was well before the iPad. It was even before Blu-ray. So we basically had to hack the DVD spec to be able to deliver to the, the viewer a seamless branching narrative. We chose to do it animation. We chose to do it as a, for a family audience. Uh, we had some amazing voice talent. We had William H. Macy. Uh, Frankie Muniz, who was just rolling off Malcolm in the Middle. Um, and so what we did is we basically tried to recreate the experience of the books. But what we did do, the one change we made, which was fundamental, is that we created characters. We created a set of characters for you to go along the ride with them, a bit more like a, a movie than a video game. So instead of a, a first-person point of view, it was really a third person where you were going along the adventure with this one family. It was basically three kids and their uncle, and we adapted the um, uh, the book, The Abominable Snowman. So the adventure took place in the Himalayas, uh, and the whole thing was about the sort of search for the mythical abominable snowman. Um, and uh, it, it did really well. It was distributed in uh, Walmart and all sorts of retailers all over the world. Um, and I've still, I'm not involved in that project anymore, but it's still, it's still on Amazon. You can still order the DVD. And uh, it's funny, that years later, lots of uh, my friends have got kids that are sort of nine, 10, and they, because it's a, a film that keeps going, because it's almost like a never-ending story. As you get to one ending and then it'll reboot, you can play it again. Um, yeah, it's a load of fun. Except unlike the uh, actual never-ending story, it has no ending. That's right, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I was a little bit riffed off with the never-ending story, because there is a last page. Well, then you get to the never-ending story, part two. It's just, come on, fellas, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> the still never-ending story. Obviously, there's something uh, about fiction that, that brings you back, because you've written, uh, what, six or seven novels? No, more than that. How many novels have you written now? I think, I think eight, including a picture book. I think that's right. And Is not that counting including the, the uh, Princess Ponies that you're a collaborator on? Because that, that boosts you up to, what, like 19? Mm -hmm. 
like that. Something like that. Uh, 20, and by the 20, time 20 or 21, this I think. A month from now, I'm sure it'll be a higher number. <laughs> well, I've been, I've, been, I've been doing this for a long time. So, <laughs> you know, as so you know, it, as you know uh, it, it, it takes a while. What, what, what brings you back to fiction over um, doing a film that's uh, much more passively viewed by your audience? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I'm I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in the power of the written word, and I I'm a I'm a huge believer that the imagination that we all have when we tra translate the written word, you know, black ink on a white page, that that process is magic. And what's amazing to me, process when we read, is that we do create our own version of the movie in our heads. Um, and often that's sometimes why films or television adaptations are disappointing because like, oh, it's not how I imagined it. And so one of the things that gives me a, a great deal of pleasure is being able to put down on the page a, just a bunch of words that a reader can then read and in their own heart and in their own mind and in the theater of their imagination concoct what the experience is. That's one thing. The other thing that I'm very attracted to that I like a lot about the written word and fiction as opposed to a more filmic approach is internal narrative, um, right? When you're doing something on the screen, you're, you're, you as the viewer are one step removed because you're watching a character go on a journey. Now you can empathize with that character and you can go on that ride with them. And if, if it's constructed well, if it's done well, you know, it really kind of hits you here. But with a book, you're right in the head of the character. And so it's a much more intimate relationship with the character and thus a much more intimate relationship with a story. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And so let's talk about uh, your fiction. I wanna ask you more. You've talked a lot about, uh, because you were a reluctant uh, reader, uh, then you discovered the Choose Your Own Adventure books that pulled you in and, 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 and taught you to, uh, that I believe reading is more of a, something you have to do to get better at. You don't start off good at it. You have to train just like the, the, the muscles of your brain, just like the muscles of your body. Uh, you have to train and become a greater reader. And that's kind of become your mission is to transform reluctant readers like you were into diligent readers. Uh, how do you have you what how have you done that in your fiction? What is it that 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 you do specifically to capture those reluctant readers? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It is really important to me. I, I think um, I didn't know. Nobody told me that reading was a skill. Nobody told me that it was just something you had to practice at the same way you have to practice at any sport or a musical instrument. Um, but I think what I try and do is I just try and make I try and create books that are as fun as possible and that are as compellingly addictive as possible. Um, so Meta Wars is a great example. Meta Wars is a thriller series. It's a total page turner. Um, what I hear back from readers time and time again is that once they start reading it, they don't want to put it down. Now, I often hear from people's parents, they get very angry uh, because their kids stay up way too late reading the books. So I get the kids in trouble because they're trying to stay up way past their bedtime reading. But Do you kind of uh, apologize to the parents? Well, oh, I'm so sorry, but not really. I'm so excited not, for myself. But, but not really, yeah. And I think that is a sign of a, of a really, that's a sign of success, right? If, if, a, if a young reader, particularly somebody who's maybe not that into books or they'd rather play video games or they'd rather do something else, if they can crack the spine of one of my books and not want to put it down, that's a big tick. Um, and then similarly with something like, um, uh, I write a, a book series called Memoirs of a Neurotic Zombie. And uh, it's about a kid called Adam Meltzer. Adam is 12 years old. Uh, he's got OCD. Uh, and then the worst thing imaginable happens to him, which is he dies. 
And then he comes back as a zombie and he's basically trying to solve effectively his own murder, but he's totally disgusted by himself. And <laughs> it's a, it, it's, it's a voice driven book. And it's, you know, I, I, I just wrote what I thought would be really fun and really funny. And readers seem to think that that's the case as well. Um, so again, that's, that's a different, it's a different skill, if you will. It's a different hook to get a reader into fiction. It's using humor, not uh, nonstop thrills, nonstop adventure. And I guess Alienated is kind of a fusion of the two. You know, it's a fun and funny book, but it's also an adventure. And it's also a bit of a commentary on school and school life and, you know, what it's like to try and be, uh, try and navigate the social structures and hierarchies of particularly high school. But of course, I'm using the metaphor of, of aliens. Well, they're both uh, pretty good metaphors, dying and then uh, that's sort of like going through adolescence is suddenly being disgusted with yourself and trying to figure out what, what's happened to you. Uh, and then with Alienated, I, uh, uh, I felt like uh, very, um, uh, oh, sort of, I very much empathized with uh, Sherman Capote and, and, and his sister uh, because they've gone to the school where they're surrounded by aliens. And I remember having that feeling uh, when I went to middle school. Uh, especially because I was uh, I was never that great at sports, always great at reading, always great with anything involving the mind. But sports, I, I'm, I'm not poorly coordinated. Uh, and overnight, some of the other kids seemed to. I remember uh, one of the boys was a beanpole and literally like the next day, like like he'd been bitten by a radioactive spider in a Spider-Man movie. He came in just ripped. I was like, oh, okay, well, this is this is kind of a lottery. Uh, genetics are paying off now for some folks and for other folks now. And I'm looking around like, how, how am I supposed to compete with that guy that woke up ripped with superpowers the next morning? And it's a little bit like you've gone to uh, uh, going uh, through that experience. It's like you're suddenly surrounded by aliens and people that have powers that you don't. I, I think that's right. I think it's it's not an uncommon experience. I mean, I was uh, not dissimilarly. I, I wasn't particularly sporty when I was an adolescent. I was very short. I was very small and very short for my age, and, and a bit uncoordinated as well. And you know, I wanted to try. I wanted to try and allow the reader to sort of go on that same journey. And I think for for younger readers, they do empathize because they might be going through the same thing. It's funny for for adults, you know, for people that have been through school and have been through high school, uh, I get a lot of that same feedback was, oh my God, I was just like Sherman. You know, I felt like a total outsider. I was the one. And and it's only until you're later in life and you're you're an adult that you find, you know, you and I find each other and we realize, oh God, you know, we would have been friends in school. You know, we we felt like that. But you don't know it at the time, right? You that's the thing. When you're going through it, you you think that everybody else has got their stuff together, everybody else is sitting at the cool table. And what you don't realize is probably about ninety-five percent of the people in the cafeteria are feeling a bit alienated. Um, and that's really where the, you know, that's the sort of double entendre where the, where the title comes from. But there, of course, are real aliens. Uh, so real quick, because you can do a better job of it than I can, uh, give a Steam viewer kind of the elevator pitch. What is Alienated about? So yeah, Alienated is, um, is a middle grade comedy adventure about the only two human kids at the high school for aliens at Area 51. So it's kind of inspired by things as random as John Hughes movies, Star Wars, Guardians of the Galaxy, Men in Black. Somebody called it Harry Potter meets Star Wars, which makes me very happy because um, that's two of my favorite things. Um, but or it's could uh, you want if you had some Batman in there, you'd have everything. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's um, it, it's 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 a fun adventure that's also poignant. So it 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 comes from a real emotional place. Um, you know, so Sherman uh, is fourteen years old uh, on the, and he lives actually with his. Uh, his Air Force general father, 
uh, and his sister, who seems to be able to excel at everything. Uh, his sister, when we first meet her, is the lead in the school play. They live on an Air Force base, a NATO Air Force base in Germany, but it's the first anniversary of their mother's death. Their mom was an army nurse. Um, she died in action uh, in Afghanistan, and uh, she always wanted to be uh, an astronaut. Uh, and she was discouraged from that when she was a little girl, but she always had this dream that she'd be an astronaut. And under U.S. military law, if you go north of 60,000 feet, you're designated to get your astronaut wings. And so on the first anniversary of her death, Sherman takes her ashes in an urn and launches them in a rocket uh, to try and get north of 60,000 feet. And of course, if you can imagine that actually happening, it would seem like a missile being launched from a, a NATO Air Force base pretty darn close to Russia. And so, rah, you know, World War III alert and the settlement with the Russians is that this family needs to be sent away to the one place that they can never be heard from again. And of course, where is that? That's Area 51 in Nevada. So that's where they end up at Groom Lake, Nevada, where it turns out there's 38 different races of aliens from all over the universe uh, who are living and working there in the bureaucracy, the sort of Bureau of Alien Affairs, kind of like air traffic control for the, for the galaxy. Uh, and under Nevada state law, all the kids have got to go to high school till they're 18. So therefore, there's Groom Lake High, and that's where they go to school. There's a little bit of everything there. It's uh, not never a one-to-one -one where, okay, well, that's that Harry Potter character redone with science fiction. They're very original uh, characters, but there are the, you know, the traditional gray, big black-eyed aliens walking around. Uh, but then there are also uh, big hairy beasts, all sorts of interesting people of, of, of all different sizes, uh, and, and different creatures with that. And I wanted to ask you um, about your inciting incident because you it's a fantastic premise. Somebody shoots a rocket off of a military base and almost triggers World War III. But you could have done that with uh, just two buddies. Uh, you could have done that with, um, with Sherman and his sister. You could have done that any number of ways, but you chose to do it just Sherman personally with his mother's ashes and without spoiling anything. What's the significance, and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I, I, I have some idea of what the significance might be, but for those looking to write a great story like Alienated, what's the significance of having those, uh, of having that initial action rooted in that emotional connection to Sherman's dead mother? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think there, there's, I can answer it on sort of two levels. One, just a sort of pure emotional level, and the other is more the mechanics of, of storytelling. From the kind of mechanical perspective, I suppose, as, as a writer and as a reader, you know, you, you want to root for your main character. You, you want to give the reader a reason to be emotionally on side with your main character. Um, so I, what I wanted to do is that I, I want, I needed to get Sherman into this utterly ridiculous situation, right? This, the whole premise is totally ridiculous. And I think the fun of Alienated is that I play it completely straight. Um, but in order to do that, it can't be flippant. The inciting incident can't be flippant. You have to do it in a way, I, I think, where you, you fall for what Sherman's done because he's basically done something really dumb. Right, he's done something incredibly stupid. He's fired a missile from a, an active NATO base pretty darn close to Russia. Now, why would somebody do something that stupid? Well, you have to think, okay, why would anybody actually do that? And you have to dig down quite deep emotionally to come up with something where it would be worth the risk. And so that's where the sort of mechanics and the building blocks of you know where the characters you know came from. Uh, so would, you've would, got an ironclad alibi for Sherman's motivation. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, always, I always think every character in the book, in any book I write, but every character, particularly in Alienated, even those whom you would call the bullies or the baddies, they're all the star of their own movie. So they've all got motivations that make sense to them, even if from the reader's perspective, we would say, you know, you might be reading those first couple of pages and say, Sherman, no, don't do that. You know, this is only going to end badly for you. Um, but for Sherman, it was a way of giving, it was a last chance of doing something for his mom that she never got to do in life. And he wanted to, to, to honor her. Um, and to do this for her, and it was important. And he also realized that his father wouldn't understand. And that's another big part of the dimension of the book is that he doesn't, again, it's a kind of a stupid thing, right? He doesn't talk to his dad and all sorts of problems come up when you don't have good communication. And you're, you're a dad, you're a parent, I'm a parent. And I'm very aware that you know, as our kids get older, they're gonna have secrets from us. And only bad things happen when there's secrets. Because if Sherman had just gone to his dad with his hand on his heart and said, this is what I wanna do, I bet you his dad probably at the time would have helped him, but he doesn't. He does it all by himself. And again, more, more things come uh, out from that through the plot um, that ultimately he has to grapple with and, and repair that relationship with his father. It's a great place to start, which is all of your conflict joined right there at the at the beginning. And I know this is going to be a, a series for you. Uh, so I wanted to ask, do you have a plan or a roadmap for what the, the next stories in the series are going to be? Uh, or are you kind of winging it by the seat of your pants just to see what uh, what comes along and what, what, what feels good at the time? It's probably a mixture. I've got I, I've got a rough idea of, of what I would like to have happen. And I've roughly mapped out the time periods in their lives that it should happen in. And so this book basically takes place over a few months, effectively towards the end of term of uh, Sherman's freshman year at Groom Lake. Book two will take place over the summer. Uh, They're going to be sent away to an uh, off-planet camp uh, because if you've spent any time in Nevada in the summer, it's just too darn hot. So all of the kids, including the sure, aliens, no, intergalactic travel is the only way to address that issue. That makes sense. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. They're not going to go camp in Maine. No, they're going to go to camp off off-planet. Um, and then the third book would come back um, when they're in tenth grade, and it would be the first few months, probably in the run-up to Christmas. And there's there's some characters that are minor characters in the first book who are almost just in the background who we'll get to know a lot more and we'll get to sense their motivations and their backstories. Um, and uh, and that's where the did conflict you, uh, is. Did you know that about them when you introduced them? Or has that been, I like that guy as I'm doing uh, book two, book three, I'd like to see more of them or is it a combination? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, what what I tend to do when I write is I write, um, I write character biographies. So I actually, there's a lot of material, creative material on each character that never ended up on the page. Um, because if I, if, if I put it on the page, the book would be eight or 900 pages long. But so there's lots of secondary or tertiary characters that again, as I was saying earlier, they're, they're fully formed characters for themselves. You know, they're the star of their own movie, but they're, but they're not a star of this book. And so it'll give me an opportunity to bring them into really conflict, um, because that's where drama comes from. Uh, with Sherman and his friends. A bit the same way in this one, I chose to elevate the character of Ned, who's Ned, N-E-D, non-Earth deity, who is the sort of wanting to be omnipotent god. He's actually sort of a sub-god. Um, and it's, you know, his character motivations as he wants to impress his family. Uh, his people are, uh, or his race rather, are, are, are uh, obsessed with uh, drinking the magma of planets. Um, and so that puts him in dire conflict with Sherman and the, the fate of the planet. And there's some comedy that comes with that. 
comedy, also the horror of For Our Poor Planet. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Let me uh, ask you, you've talked about uh, pulling in reluctant readers. And as I was reading Alienated, I noticed obviously you kept the the chapter short. There's a lot of action. You're never going very long without action. And there's a lot of humor. Um, Is that markedly different than when you're writing for older readers? And can you talk a little bit about what techniques specifically you employ for middle grade writing? Yeah, I think, you know, in a weird way, and this wasn't that conscious, but if you remember those Choose Your Own Adventure books, they were very short chapters, and then you got to make a decision. And I think one of the things I wanted to do with Alienated is I wanted to have fairly short chapters so that a reader could feel a sense of accomplishment. I think when you get to the end of a a chapter, if you're a reluctant reader, you feel like, man, that's good. Look, I've just read 10 chapters uh, or 20 chapters. And I think part of what I can do as a writer for that audience is I can offer them that sense of accomplishment. Um, the humor helps, right? Because if you keep people laughing, they want to keep going and we all love to laugh. Uh, but I think the idea of having sort of short clippy chapters helps because you just get the sense of, hey, I, you know, I can keep going, I can do this, I can read one more. Oh, it's only a few more pages, I'll keep going. I think it's something that we can offer the reader. It's a nice feeling of accomplishment when you get there and get there quickly. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for people who are, you know, are, are building up their level of confidence, you know, my hope is, I mean, Alienated is, it, you know, it's not an easy read. I mean, I, there's some big ideas and there's some big concepts and there's even some big words. But I'm also a big believer that that somebody who might be a bit of a reluctant reader, maybe they're not going to get 100% of the vocabulary that's in the book, but they're going to understand what's going on and that maybe they'll graduate out of Alienated and they'll they'll tackle, um, you know, they'll tackle some something that's a bit uh, a bit beefier, a bit meatier. Um, but at the same time, I just hope they have a great, uh, a great ride. And what, uh, what is it you're hoping that most other than a great ride that readers will take away from Alienated? You know, I think there's a lot of lessons in here. You know, I think there's, there's, um, there's definitely a big lesson about inclusiveness uh, and about uh, friendship and being friends with people who are, you know, in, in the most extreme way, fundamentally different from you. You know, and I think one of the things that not only we uh, as people who are looking after the interests of young people, but just people, frankly, on the planet, you know, there's a lot of division out there right now. And there's a lot of people who are seeking to exploit division. And I actually think one of the themes of Alienated is, you know what, we're kind of all the same deep down. Um, we, sh- we can just get along. We can just get along. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing for me is this idea of, you know, and I know there's lots of words that are thrown around diversity and representation and inclusion, but, you know, fundamentally, this is about the most diverse character set you can get. And really, everybody gets along in the end in a way that's really, really beautiful, actually. So that uh, young readers might say, well, okay, um, some of the uh, kids in my class are different for me, but we're all humans. At least we're not, <laughs> we're not that different. We could find a way to make this work. That's that's kind of the gag. Yeah, that's kind of the gag is, you know, you know, we I think we as human beings do all sorts of things to make ourselves be different from other people, uh, culturally, religion, whatever you name it. But actually, we're all very, very similar. And I think if we remember that we can get along a lot better. Um, And I think whether that's in a classroom environment or whether that's at a geopolitical level, I think it's a it's a lesson worth remembering. And it's a lesson that comes very organically through the drama and the comedy and alienated. And a last question about Alienated, because I, I can't not ask it. Um, 
you're referencing Area 51 in Groom Lake. You're referencing some popular UFO uh, mythology, which you describe in the book, I believe, as being um, uh, mytho as mythological as Justin Bieber's musical talent, which is a description <laughs> I just love. Um, but are you are you a believer? Do you believe that flying saucers are about how much stock do you put in UFO mythology? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I really wrestle with this because on one hand, um, I'm a big believer in 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 observable science. Um, on the other hand, you know, to th I think it's very arrogant of us as human beings to think that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. You know, the universe is a really big place. Um, and so I think I'm fairly optimistic that there's probably other life out there. Now, whether it's ever reached Earth is another sort of um, physics-based question I don't have an answer for. But yeah, I think I, think I would be, I'm, I'm open-minded um, to believe that it's a big place, this universe. And, uh, you know, we might be in our tiny little corner of it. At the same time, I don't think I've seen any evidence which, uh, you know, which makes me believe that, okay, absolutely, there has been an alien spaceship that has come to Earth. But I love science fiction. I love that kind of storytelling. So, I, you know, a bit like Mulder, I want to believe. Yeah, unfortunately, I always have to offer that disclaimer out there anytime I talk about this, that hey, before I admit that, yes, I do believe that this is a thing, uh, I want to believe it. So it's entirely possible that I'll be wrong. I haven't seen a UFO, uh, but I do think there's now enough smoke that we can say, hey, there might could be some fire. Um, moving on back to writing, because this isn't the paranormal hour with Rob, although maybe <laughs> one day we'll do that. Uh, but moving uh, back to writing, I wanted to make sure I asked you about zombies. Um, what is it about zombies that's brought you back? Because you've got a film, a short film about a zombie. You've got two different series involving zombies. What do you love about them? You know, I I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something with the zombie genre because I love the zombie genre. But the zo zombie genre is always from the point of view of survivors, right? And it's basically about slaying, slashing, and slaying, and it's kind of the only socially acceptable form of murder, right? Killing zombies. And I basically wanted to turn the tables. And so that's where the character of Adam Meltzer, Adam Meltzer actually was a sort of spin-off from the short film. I made a short film a few years ago, really just for fun. I, it's, it's online somewhere. I did a bunch of festivals uh, when it came well, out. You could view it at uh, awesome.com, can't you? Uh, yeah, if you go to awesome media ent, awesome media ent, I think, uh, or jeffnorton.com, I think there's, there's links on there. Um, and it was just a fun thing that we shot in my house over a weekend a few years ago. But, and it was about an adult, it was about a zombie uh, who basically came back from the grave. And the gag was that he sort of had a second chance. And so it was all from his point of view. Um, and he was kind of a useless guy, he was a bit useless father when he was alive. And this was a second chance for him to, to kind of make amends. And I took that little nugget of an idea and I put it into the character of Adam Meltzer. Um, and what I did is I thought, like, who would be the kind of person for which becoming a zombie would be the absolute worst thing in the world? And it would be somebody who's got obsessive compulsive disorder, somebody who's totally disgusted by graying skin and flesh peeling off and arms that are falling off. Um, and Adam is that character. You know, he's he likes things just so. And so to become a zombie is the worst thing that can happen. And then bizarrely, over the course of the books, he realizes that actually he's got a second chance. Um, and then in a weird way, it's one of the best things that happens to him because he meets some incredible friends that he would never, uh, that once he becomes undead, he's sort of, the, the wool is pulled over, is pulled back over his eyes and he's able to see that, that there is a super supernatural 
dimension, if you will, to to the world around him, and he's able to become you know great friends with Karina, who is um, spoiler alert a vegan vampire, uh, or Nesto, the uh, the kind of cheeky chupacabra who lives behind him, and so this sort of gift that he gets of a second chance is really the gift of friendship. Um, and again, there's a similar theme. You know, he becomes friends with people that he would not ordinarily ever seek out or ever be friends with, and they couldn't be more different. And this little trio uh, become become besties. Jeff, I could talk to you all day. I've got nonstop questions about taking an interesting situation and then finding the most interesting character for that situation. Uh, but I do want to ask you just two more questions, and we'll, sure. we'll call it a day here. I want to ask first, what is uh, your number one piece of advice for writers watching this? What can they do to, to, to tomorrow wake up and become a version of Jeff Norton? Uh, and two, where can uh, readers or viewers find more about you? Yeah, good questions. I mean, I think the first question, advice, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if I'm anybody to give advice, but the one, the one piece of insight that I've gleaned that has been useful is there's no other magic formula other than hours in the chair. Um, and that my biggest advice I would share with fellow writers and, and fellow travelers is you got to put the hours in. And I know it's hard. You know, uh, you've got work, you've got kids, you've got lots of things that are vying for your time. And that the life hack to, to be able to find is probably to find the day part where you can have that alone time. For me, it's early in the morning. I typically write when I'm fresh. Uh, I basically, the way my day plays out, I write very early in the mornings and then I'm producing in the afternoon, the, the late mornings in the afternoon, really when North America wakes up. Uh, so but I try- to, your typical writing session then? I try and do a couple of hours every morning. Um, sometimes two, sometimes three. Um, some days are better than others. Um, and I've got two kids, so there's some commitments that go with that. Uh, I try and wake up before anybody else in the house. Um, so I, I basically do sort of three work shifts. I do a sort of very early writing shift. Uh, I do my day shift running awesome. Uh, and then I often, uh, after dinner, get back on the phone with folks in LA or, or New York because they've obviously got a more extended day versus here in London, we're, we're eight hours ahead of Los Angeles. Um, so that would be my advice is just put the hours in as much as possible every single day and make it habitual. I think if you can make it a habit, I've got a friend of mine who writes a, a book called the power of habit, Charles Duhigg. And he, um, he sort of really unlocked this notion, uh, that if you can make something habitual, then it just becomes something your brain doesn't have to think about your subconscious mind kind of goes on autopilot. So if you can, if you can make the process of writing on autopilot, you're already ahead of the game. Um, and then in terms of where you can kind of engage with me or find th more things, uh, I've got a website, which is jeffnorton.com. Um, all my books are certainly on Amazon and in lots of good bookstores. I don't think we're in the bad bookstores. No, there's no bad bookstores. Um, but yeah, well, Jeff, Jeff you, Jeff they, they've been transformed from a bad bookstore to a good bookstore. Yeah, I guess so. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, jeffnorton.com, or I, I am on Twitter. I do tweet from time to time as the Jeff Norton. Um, so say hello, and uh, I like I love chatting with other writers and other creatives. It's uh, you know the thing about writing is it can be lonely. You know you're you're there at the laptop at the crack of dawn by yourself. So sometimes it's really nice to engage over. It's one of the nice things about social media is that you can kind of create a community that's uh, from people all around the world. And you know I've I've made lifelong friends through uh, through the randomness of Twitter, and uh, I think that's a really special thing. I agree. So get out there, network with other writers, network with uh, Jeff. Jeff, what's next for you? What can we be looking for? Yeah, good question. Uh, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm uh, just finishing off uh, uh, the final edit on a manuscript 
called Dino Knights. Uh, Dino Knights is medieval knights on the backs of dinosaurs, uh, which is super cool. And awesome. a couple couple weeks ago, uh, there was a big announcement in the Hollywood Reporter. Um, it's being developed for television with Jim Henson Company, uh, who obviously the company behind the Muppets. Uh, Dark Crystal is a show they're making for Netflix right now. The reboot of the um, it's actually a prequel uh, to the, the film they made Labyrinth back in the day. Uh, so yeah, we're working on that right now. It's uh, the show is going to be called Knights of Pantera. Pantera is the land uh, where dinosaurs never went extinct. Um, and it's sort of swashbuckling, high fantasy, high adventure fun. Uh, so think, I mean, it's a flippant pitch, but think Game of Thrones for a family audience. Love it. I would watch every moment of that. And Jim Henson, I was just thinking they made that show, Dinosaurs, from forever ago. Uh, That's right. They've still got some of those uh, puppets lying around. They can just put some knights on there and you, can, you have your budget. <laughs> oh, my God. you you, you got to see the creatures they're coming up with. It's, uh, it, it, I mean, I love that show when they did it, which is sort of almost like a live action cartoon. Um, we're, we're going for practical effects that basically look like we're, we're right out of Lord of the Rings. Oh, I'm sure whatever they, they can do now is going to blow that out of the it's water. Amazing. So. It's amazing. Yeah. But Jeff, I uh, want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got two kids waiting for dinner. Uh, I so appreciate you being here. This was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, Steve Buehr, go check out Jeff at jeffnorton.com. Make sure you check out us at middlegradeninja.com. Don't forget to grab your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and leave a review. Always appreciate it. Until next time, have a wonderful day. And Jeff, thanks again for being here. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.